please turn in your Bible to Malachi chapter 1, verse 6. This morning's sermon will cover Malachi 1, 6 through 2, 9. If you're using one of the pew Bibles below the sanctuary seats, you will find Malachi 1, 6 on page 801. This morning's passage will be by far the longest in this uh, sermon series. I've kept it together rather than breaking it into two parts because I think it will be helpful for us to make our way through the entire section at one time. Last Sunday, in the opening five verses of Malachi, we, we find God's people questioning his love for them, demanding that the Lord explain to his people how it is that he has loved them. And the Lord answers their question by giving them rock-solid evidence of his love for his people in the doctrine of election. How have you loved us? And he says, I chose you. I entered into a covenant with you and no other nation you I have loved. Well, in this morning's passage, the Lord says that the real question is not his love for his people, but whether or not his people love him. He flips the scripts. He turns the tables. It was Israel's greatest blessing to know and to serve the Lord who rescued them from destruction, who had redeemed them from slavery and protected them from their enemies. However, their worship had become half-hearted at best, stale and dry. They were going through the motions of religion, and a big part of the problem was that their spiritual leaders were failing them. The Lord of hosts had loved his people, but they were not loving him. And now would all of those who are able please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Malachi 1.6 A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest who despise my name. But you say, How have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised when you offer blind animals in sacrifice. Is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering? Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And now, O priest, this command is for you. 
If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have not turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. This is God's word for his people. May we hear it, believe it, and obey it. You may be seated. And now let's pray. You are the Lord of hosts. You are the great God who is worthy of all worship and praise. And that is why we have come to this place on this morning, the Lord's day, to sing, to pray, to hear, to respond to you, the God of grace and mercy. You are worthy of everything, our very lives. God, we give you thanks. We thank you for the gospel. For we deserved your wrath, and instead you sent your son Jesus. You came willingly, not begrudgingly. You came willingly. It was the Father's will to crush you, and it was your willingness to come and live a sinless life and die in our place that has saved us. And spirit, it is your great work of of opening our, our eyes and giving us the ability to see and hear granting us repentance and faith. You, triune God, we thank and praise you for the gospel that has saved us. God, we give you thanks for the blessing of your people, that you have put other believers in our lives, given us the local church where we experience this side of heaven, life in the kingdom together. It's not perfect. Our sin and the sins of others makes it difficult, and yet we sit under your law. We praise and worship you, our King. We help each other grow as disciples. We provide for one another in generosity. We give our offerings. We experience a little bit of what life in the kingdom forever will be like, this side of heaven together in the church. And so we thank you for the church. We thank you for your word, for it does rebuke and exhort and correct us. It is like a sword that cuts through the hardest of hearts, through our hearts. It cut and it will cut through other hearts. We praise you for the gift of song as we sing praise to you, our God, together in unison. We praise you for your many blessings, and they are many. Even in our darkest of days, in our sorrow, in our sufferings, we are a blessed people. For you are God, and in Christ we have all that we need. You have given us your word, your spirit, your people. We are blessed. 
And God, we pray for our Albanian team that is now in Tirana. May you bless their efforts as they translate scripture and help others understand English. I know that there will be Albanians that go, that see the the signs and know people in the church and hear that Americans are coming to teach English and they will go with the wrong motives. Simply to, to gain more understanding of a language and yet you will overcome their motives and their hard hearts as the gospel is put before them and some, I pray, you will save. That we will hear more stories like the stories of Marcel and Danila and Ina and so many others, Habib, who came to an English class to learn from Americans English and they learned more about English through scripture being translated out of Albanian and into English and they repented and believed because through that effort, you changed their hearts as they heard the gospel. You did what only you could do. You brought them to life. And so we pray for more of this on this trip for your glory and our joy. Lord, we also pray for the Hartman family as David moves into uh, the village for, for a month's time and leaves Anna and the children in Manaus and he seeks to, to really lay down the foundation of his house and people are coming to help and we pray to send people as well that you would bless that effort, that as he's there you would protect Anna and the children and those that are, are there to help support her, that you would bless them as well. We pray for David and his brothers and sisters in Christ who will, who will support that effort and begin the construction. We pray for favor among the tribal leaders and we pray that, that it would be profitable and beneficial and good that you would bless the efforts of their hands, for that home will be a place of ministry, a place where his children grow up and, and see their mother and father lay down their lives. It will be a place of Bible study. It will be a place where they are able to, to use so that they can strengthen and, and better disciple the believers and ultimately support a healthy local church. We pray for the Hartman family in this season of busyness and another trial. May you bless them. We also pray for the Creech family in Senegal as they seek to minister to the Yanomami as they've moved closer to the tribe and now they're in a long-term home and they're ministering to the the non-Christians, the Muslims, especially around them and and they're caring for their family and this week they're, they're dealing with sickness, especially with their baby. Lord, we pray for healing and blessing, for refreshment in Christ that the brothers and sisters in Christ around them at this time would be a, be a help to them. We pray that as Mike continues to lead his family and, and demonstrate what it looks like to lay down his life in Senegal, that you would bless Mike and Stacy and their efforts and that all of it would lead to a Binuke local church that praises and glorifies your name. Father, we pray for Waukesha City Church, our our brothers and sisters who we sent out some seven years ago who are a healthy, little but growing church that proclaims the gospel in downtown Waukesha. We pray that you would protect them and bless them, that more and more disciples would be made. We pray for marriages that are represented in this room and in this church, that husbands would be like Christ and wives would be like the church. We pray for the singles among us that they would not compromise but trust you to provide a godly Christian spouse. We pray for the sick, those who who have or will soon have a surgery. We pray for those who have recently experienced great loss or are struggling with a previous loss. 
We pray for those struggling with depression, hopelessness, those who feel far from God this morning through the preaching of your word by the power of your spirit. Would you refresh, rebuke, encourage your people? Draw those who are still dead in their sins out. Renew and refresh, bring life to those who are dead. For your glory and our joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To honor someone is to recognize their position and authority. It it means showing respect, which can also be described as having an appropriate fear of that person. And depending on the relationship, honoring someone may require obedience. God teaches us in his word that honor is important. It's important in family, so much so that with the fifth commandment, God commands children to honor their father and mother. Lest children think that this was just an Old Testament, Old Covenant requirement that no longer applies in the New Covenant. In Ephesians 6, 1 through 3, Paul writes, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So it applies. Old covenant, new covenant, whatever your view is on all the covenants and how they work and fit together, this covenant applies. How can honoring one's parents lead to a better and longer life? Because if, if children don't honor their parents, the Lord instructs Christian parents to discipline their disobedient children. And that can be unpleasant. That, that doesn't seem like a, a, a joyful life for the child. Discipline. It's good. It's needed. And in the Old Covenant, a child who attacks or curses their parents could be put to death. So children, do you want to know the secret to having a better, longer life? God says in his word, honor your father and your mother. Honor your parents. Uh, Parents, it's important that you teach your children this truth. The Bible also teaches Christians to honor others who are in positions of authority over us, like bosses, managers, or employers. The parallel to this in ancient times was the servant-master relationship. Only a few verses later, we read in Ephesians 6, 5 through 8 this, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. And so in this section, Paul is unpacking, how do we live the Christian life? Now we've been saved by grace. What does this look like in everyday life? And so earlier, he's dealing with husbands and wives, gets into children. He's dealing with now here, the relationship between masters and servants, employers and employees. Now, all of this doesn't mean that we must sit by and allow wicked, evil, or corrupt parents, bosses, or others to do evil. Ephesians 6, 4 commands that fathers not provoke their children to anger. And Ephesians 6, 9 tells masters to do good to their servants and to not threaten them. But when honor is not given to those that God instructs it to be given to, then we are disobeying the Lord, and the result can be chaos. It can be instability and division at home and at work. And I believe we're experiencing this in families, and we're experiencing this in our country, and we're experiencing this in business. There's, there's no honor. 
Children are not held to the standard Christian parents swinging away from not wanting to be legalistic and confuse the gospel. Do not teach their children to obey them. They do not discipline their children when their children are disobedient. Out of fear of confusing the gospel, they say, I'll just love you and show you grace. It's not showing your children grace if you do not discipline them when they deserve to be disciplined. You're disobeying the Lord, parents. And employees now have gained this this power where they just complain and bicker. Not everybody, but oftentimes. I even hear Christians. Christians in this church just complaining and grumbling about their bosses. Not showing honor. If your boss was right there and they hear you saying all these things, you might struggle with obeying them. You think they're foolish and silly. They don't know what they're doing. You should be the boss. You're not honoring the Lord when you do this. And it's causing chaos and stability and division. Think about all the people that you've influenced at work as you've said these things. Has that brought greater unity and stability at work? No, it hasn't. Think of the child who continues to do these things and they have siblings. The oldest child who models disobedience. What's being picked up by the other siblings? It's okay to disobey. So sadly, it's becoming more and more common for children to dishonor their parents and employees to dishonor their supervisors. Church, if God has put someone in a position of authority over us and they're not requiring us to sin, then we're to show them honor by giving them respect. And where it applies, we are to be obedient. It's biblical, it's right, it honors the Lord. Well, in this morning's passage, God uses the father-son and master-servant relationship to rebuke his people for not giving him the honor that he deserves. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I'm a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? The Lord's point is that if a son is to show his father honor, and he is, and a servant is to fear his master, and he is. Now, this was commonly accepted in the day. This was obvious. There wasn't an argument, a disagreement about this. There wasn't the same dishonor in families because it would be dealt with right away, sometimes legalistically, sometimes wrongly, without grace. But this was assumed knowledge. God says, in light of these truths about how how children are to honor their, their father and servants are to honor their master, fear their master. Even more, God's people are to show him honor and to fear his name. After all, God is our father in heaven. By his sovereign grace, we are his children. This was true of Israel then and it is true of the church today. And God is also our master. He owns us. He is our Lord, our King. We are his servants, his people, his subjects. God made us. We exist as a people because he made us his people. Once we were not his people, now we are his people. He rescued us from destruction. He brought us into his kingdom. And think of a kingdom. So many problems happen today in, in, in understanding who God is and, and what it means to be a Christian in this simple thing. God has a kingdom. And if you're a Christian, you've been brought into that kingdom. And what does a kingdom have? A king. We are his subjects. He is our king. Yes, we're his children, but we're also his subjects. He is Lord, Savior and Lord. We submit to him. We serve him. And so the honor the Lord's people are to give God is far greater than the honor we are to give to our parents or bosses. 
oftentimes, uh, and I'll be doing this uh, again, and I've done more of this, when I meet with a young person who, who wants to be baptized, one of the things that I ask them and ask their parents is this, are they honoring you? Are you honoring your father and your mother? Because that helps me know if they're honoring the Lord. Because it's, it's indicative of your relationship with the Lord, young people, if you refuse to honor your parents. Because that means that you're, you're not honoring the Lord. When used in connection with God, the word honor is often translated glory. God's glory is all that he is. His infinite, manifold greatness emanating outwards. It's all that he is coming out to us. We can't fully wrap our minds around how great and how awesome God is, but his glory is all that he is coming out from him. It is the visible expression of his intrinsic intrinsic and perfect attributes on display. We have to come up with big theological words to try and attempt to explain how great and how awesome and how beautiful our God is. Psalm 19.1 says that God's glory can be seen in creation. The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. And so when you, when you notice, when you're captivated by creation, a, a beautiful sky, the, the colors that come from, from the, the sunrise or the sunset, when you notice and you go to the zoo and you walk around and you see the giraffes and you say, that, that's awesome, even if you're not a Christian, that, that feeling, that thought is really tied to this, God is glorious. God made that. Everything that exists that makes you go, whoa, that makes you feel small and realize that you are small in the grand scheme of things, that helps us understand how great and how glorious God is. But the Bible teaches us that the best and fullest way that we humans can see God's glory is in Jesus Christ. Because as the author of Hebrews writes, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And so, yes, you can be captivated by creation. You can say, this is amazing. Look at creation. Some of us have non-Christian family members and friends and neighbors who are just like, wow. You know what they're doing? They're worshiping creation rather than the creator. Because if you really want the fullest, clearest picture of God's glory, you have to look to Jesus Christ. He is the exact imprint of of God's nature. He is God. And so to see the glory of God as a finite human being in the most amazing way, you have to see Jesus rightly. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 tells us that when God saves us, we now see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Once we did not Maybe we grew up going to Sunday school and hearing the stories. Oh yeah, David's great. He slayed Goliath. Maybe be like Goliath. Or no, don't be like Goliath. Be like David. You should be nice. and Be generous and give some money to people that need it. You might have heard all the stories and the morals and all that stuff. And then one day it clicked. It's all about Jesus. He is the exact imprint of God's nature because he is God in flesh. 
And you saw the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And ever since you've been seeing the glory of God most clearly in the face of Jesus Christ. And so now when you see the beauty in, the, in creation, you say, yeah, but I know the God who made that. And I know him through and by and in Jesus Christ. To glorify or honor the Lord is to rightly acknowledge that he is indeed God. You have to start there. This is God. The God of the Bible is God. If you're going to honor him, you have to know that he is God. It's also to submit to his authority as God over us. He is Lord. He is God. He is King. He is the everything. And he has authority, complete authority over you. It also means respecting and fearing the Lord. We are to fear the Lord, the Bible teaches us. That's the beginning of knowledge, to fear the Lord. We're also to obey his word. It's not enough to come to church and to recite the confession of sin and hear the pardon of assurance. It's not enough to just listen to the scripture or even memorize scripture, to sing some of the songs sometimes when you feel like it, even to share the gospel when you want to with somebody who's basically begging you to, to, to share the gospel with them. That's not enough. We must obey the word for we are his subjects. And all of this is captured in worshiping the Lord. To honor the Lord requires that you worship the Lord. But in this morning's passage, the Lord rebukes his people because rather than honor him, they have been despising him. Notice in verse 6, and this is true throughout the passage, the Lord specifically rebukes the priests. All of the other people, all of God's people, all of Israel, they were all called to honor the Lord. It was every Israelite's duty to honor the Lord. But it was the Levitical priests with the help of the other Levites who were especially tasked, they were responsible for leading the honoring of the Lord in worship. We won't get into all the history and the background there, but you can read in Exodus and, and you can look at Leviticus and Deuteronomy. God had ordained the priesthood to lead in the worship of the Lord among his people. Everybody was responsible, but these were the leaders. And priests did this mainly two ways. First, by overseeing the sacrifices that were made at the temple, ensuring that they were done according to God's instructions in Leviticus 22, 17 through 25. There are detailed instructions how these sacrifices were to be prepared and offered on the Lord's table. They were to be done according to God's word, his law. They were also tasked with instructing the people in God's word, God's law. It was through the prophets that God gave his word and it was the priests who were the everyday interpreters, upholders, and appliers of God's word. One commentator helps explain the difference between the teaching ministry of the prophet and the teaching ministry of the priest by describing the prophet as being like the itinerant or traveling preacher who preached a timely sermon. So as we talked about last week, God would send a prophet. He would call a prophet and send a prophet to give a message from him. And that message would largely be the same message over and over. And he would keep on saying that message, that message. It was a needed, timely message. And it was the priest's job. They were, they were like the local church pastor who ministered to the people day to day. Well, in reply to the Lord's rebuke, the priests want proof. They want to know how it is that they have despised the Lord. The Lord being the perfect father he is, he proceeds to teach his children. Now, sometimes children and parents, there is, there is a, a, a need to say just this, because I said so. I, I try to avoid just saying that all the time, partly because my parents said it all the time. And I was like, yeah, but ugh, why, why, why? But there is a time and place for that, because I said so, because I'm your mom, because I'm your dad, and I love you and you need to trust me because I said so. 
So it's valid. However, so often as we see the Lord's rebukes and his judgments and his calling to his people to come back to him, he teaches them. He doesn't just say, because I said so. He could every single time, because I said so. Being the perfect father he is, he teaches his children. In verses 7 and 8, we see that. And we, church, would do well to learn the same lesson from our God that he had for his people then, for it applies to today. The Lord begins by telling them that they have despised him by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised when you offer blind animals in sacrifice. Is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? God's people were offering polluted, blemished, defiled, and later in verse 13, we read even stolen or dying animals to the Lord of hosts. These were unclean sacrifices. Instead of following the clear sacrificial regulations that God had given, the people were giving the priest animals that were unacceptable to be offered for sacrifice. And worse, the priests were putting them on the Lord's table. They were looking around and saying, let's get rid of that one, honey. That, that, we don't need that one, right? Lord demands a sacrifice, let's take it. The priests who knew better, who knew that was not an acceptable sacrifice would say, all right, works for me. Take it, prepare it, and then put it on the Lord's table and burn it as an offering to the Lord. The Lord says, you wouldn't even offer a sacrifice like that to your governor, the earthly government official who they were to give a gift to as a tribute in order to avoid harm and gain his favor. You wouldn't even give that to your governor. Think about it. If you knew someone really important was coming over to your house for dinner tonight, and you looked in the fridge, and you saw leftover meatloaf, and you went to the pantry, and you saw some, a can of string green beans. That's my favorite out of this, the canned beans. Canned string, French-style green beans. Saw that. Okay, good. We're good. Then you looked around, and you, you needed something crunchy. You know, meatloaf's kind of spongy. Green beans from the can are going to be kind of mushy. You need some crunch. And you look around, and, and yep, there in the corner of the pantry, you know, there's some cobwebs over it. There's, <laughs> there's some dust around it. But you see a bag of crunched-up chips. But then you look in the fridge and you also see some great steaks that you've been saving this week because you can't, you can't wait to eat those steaks. You've been saving them for, for an important time. And, and then you look in the pantry and, oh, yep, there's some fingerling potatoes, my personal favorite. You go to the fridge, oh, there's some fresh vegetables and apple pie. Which meal are you going to put on the table for that person that's really important? That has great influence over your life, who's very powerful. Say it's your boss and you're up for a promotion, a raise. You got two meals that you could put on the table. Forget that. Something more important. The president, even if you're a Democrat, the president's coming over. They have an influence. They can raise your taxes. And this meal is going to influence all that. You can raise your taxes. Forget that Jesus is coming over to have a meal with you. What are you going to put on the table? Meatloaf, canned string beans, and some crunched up chips? Or are you going to put that really, really nice steak? Those fingerling potatoes and some roasted vegetables and that apple pie for dessert. If you want to honor that person, you know which meal you're going to pick. But in essence, 
What the priests were doing was putting the meatloaf, the string beans, and the crunched up chips on the table. Instead of teaching God's people to honor the Lord by giving their father and master some of their best, a portion of their treasure, the priests were teaching God's people that the Lord's word can be disobeyed, that God can be disrespected and dishonored, that the Lord is not all that important. He'll take your leftovers, whatever you find laying around. Yeah, here's the standard. Here's what he said in his word. It doesn't, you know what? doesn't matter. We'll compromise. You know what? I like you, farmer. I like you, shepherd. I know things are hard. I know the Lord says this, but you know what? We're going to compromise. You can offer that. They were making themselves God. They were catering to man. Now, some might say it seems like an overreaction, especially if you caught that dung part that I read. You know, some of you might have been tuning out. It's a long passage to read in one whole section. You've been standing a lot. We stand more because of the confession of sin and the part of you. You're like, all right, when's this going to be over? Whoa, there's more, there's more, there's more. And then dung came up, right? And some of you perked up, the kids especially. What dung on your faces? Well, that, that seems maybe like an overreaction. What does it matter if the animal is blind or missing a leg or an eye? Even if it's dying, since it's just going to be killed anyway. Maybe it seems even wise to get rid of the weaker bull or goat or lamb, especially if your livelihood, really your existence, was largely dependent on the raising of animals so you could eat their meat, drink their milk, sell them for bread. But God is worthy of being treasured by his people. He's worthy of that. He's worthy of being treasured by his people. And and we treasure someone how? By giving them what is most valuable, not by giving them our worst, our junk, our leftovers. In our family devotions, when I read at night, uh, right now Amy and I kind of divide and conquer. So she takes uh, two boys. We switch off every night. She takes two boys. I take two. They, they share rooms and uh, we flip-flop. And in my, in my devotions, what I do is I read through that week's passage to prepare my boys' hearts, hopefully, for that week's sermon. And they, they sit in worship with us and they go to Sunday school, the other service. But I, I, I've been reading this passage. And when I did, one of my sons said, whoa. What, what is that about, Dad? Of course, dung on your faces. You're like, what is, what is that? They, they wanted to know more. Why, God? Or why, why, Dad, would God do that? And so in that moment with my young son, uh, this, this illustration came to mind. Son, you know that I love you, right? Well, what if for Christmas I gave you a big box, and when you opened that box, you looked inside, it was our garbage. I put that garbage in there, and I said, Son, I love you. There it is. Here's what I have for you this Christmas. Would, would you think that I love you? Would you think that that's a good gift? No, no, I wouldn't, Dad. But what if I, I put something really important, really expensive, really nice in that box? Would you know even more my heart for you? Yes, yes, I would. God's people were putting their junk in the box and saying, here you go, God. There are other important reasons for all those unblemished and animal sacrifices. Because of our sin, we deserve God's judgment. We need to hear that every single Sunday. Because of our sin, we deserve God's judgment. The wages of sin is death, physical and spiritual. Those unblemished animals being sacrificed reminded God's people just how bad their sin was. And we really need to know just how how bad the news is in order to understand just how good the news is. 
If you don't have a right understanding of sin and the doctrine of sin, it's really hard to appreciate and be amazed at the doctrine of salvation, (laughs) to know what you were saved from. And so, yes, we talk about the bad news, but we always talk about the good news. So these sacrifices of unblemished, unpolluted, undefiled animals, according to God's word, gave God's people a right doctrine of sin. Sin destroys. It destroys families. I've seen it. We've seen it as a church. It destroys countries. We're feeling that and experiencing that. The church, if the Lord tarries and doesn't come back in 100 or 200 years, the church then is going to look back and say, look, that was a consequence of their sin. The church stopped being prophetic. They catered to the culture. They compromised. And look what happened. There was no truth. Very much like we see in Malachi. Sin destroys. It destroys countries. It destroys souls and eternity forever if it's unrepented of. A perfect sacrifice of an animal communicates this important truth better than a blemished one. If they gave their worst animals, it would have cheapened the reality of the consequences of their sin. My sin is just worth the lame ones, the the, the leftovers, the junk that I have. That's what sin costs. No, God said, no, sin leads to death. The wages of sin is death. You need to give some of your best. Another important truth is that all those unblemished animals, those bulls, those goats, those lambs, those pigeons, that met God's standards, pointed the way to the substitutionary, sin-atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who John the Baptist saw and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Think about it. If they had these unblemished, whatever, junk leftovers and offered those as, as sacrifices, they would be connecting and paralleling that to Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so there was a purpose, a reason. All those unblemished, important, valuable animals that were sacrificed pointed to the perfect, invaluable, precious Lamb of God. It was all there, sacrifice after sacrifice. This is precious to me. This goat is, is, is important. It's a big part of my income, but I will give it to the Lord. And that pointed the way to Jesus. The author of Hebrews makes this connection in Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Church, God had important purposes for the sacrificial system, and the priests were to oversee it. They were to make sure it happened, preparing the way for the Messiah and his work of salvation. But we read in verse 13 that the priests were saying, what a weariness this is. And they were snorting at it all, the whole thing. This is hard. This is heavy. It's a burden, they were saying. They had the very best father, God himself. But Israel had become a nation of ungrateful, rebellious, punk kids. 
And their leaders were some of the worst. They were the older brother saying, we can disrespect our father, whatever, we'll compromise. That's what the priests were like. They had the very best king, but they were complaining, self-absorbed, lazy subjects. No king is greater than the Lord of hosts. And they were complaining about what he was telling them to do. The priests considered their duties to be a burden, a hardship. They were bored with worshiping the Lord. They had no passion to lead God's people in honoring him. What a sad thing it is when the leaders of God's people, whether they be priests then or pastors today, are just going through the motions. The reality is those priests and the pastors today are sinners just like everyone else. They are sheep called to be under shepherds for the great and better good shepherd. And so they will struggle week to week. Sometimes I don't feel like preaching. That might surprise you. But I know I owe it to the Lord and I owe it to the Lord's people to give all that I have. Whatever it is, whatever, whatever he provides me with strength to preach, I will preach it. And so I prepare and I study hours and hours and I stay up late at night so that I can better prepare. And sometimes I miss it. The Lord overcomes my failures and he provides and he strengthens and he feeds his people because I read the passage. So his word is going to go forth even if I miss it. But if I got up here and I gave you just, ugh, looked at pastoral ministry like it was a job and not a work that God has called some to do, I would do you a disservice and the priests were doing that. Here you go, yep, all right. It was, it was a machine, it was a business. Their livelihood also came from those sacrifices. They would take a portion. All right, here we are just doing this thing. How sad it is when the priests then or pastors today just go through religious motions. Only a half century before this, the people of God were full of joy over the restoration of worship in Jerusalem and the reinstitution of the sacrifices at the temple. But now, only a short time later, passion for God and his word was gone among the priests, the spiritual leaders of the people. And it was the priest's fault. the Lord gives more evidence of their dishonoring of his name in chapter 2, verses 7 through 9. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despise and abase before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction." Not only were the priests making a mockery of worship by offering the people's leftovers as sacrifices, they were teaching God's people about, they weren't teaching God's people about their God. They were not telling them about all that the Lord had done for them, how he had demonstrated his love for them over and over, how gracious and patient and kind and good he had been for, been for so many years to his people. They were not teaching the people about the Lord of hosts, whose power is matchless. We, we try to explain how, how powerful God is and, and, and we lack the words to do it. And they weren't even trying. They weren't telling them about the God who needs nothing from no one but out of his sovereign love chose to love them. The God who covenanted with their forefathers, who, who freed them from slavery in Egypt, who provided for them in the wilderness, who defeated their enemies, who gave them the very land that they were now in. 
They were not teaching the Lord's people what he required of them in the covenant. They were not teaching them God's law. Those who were to lead God's people to God had themselves turned away from the Lord. And the result of their wicked leadership, their half-hearted, man-centered, stale, going-through-the-motion religion was that they caused many to stumble. Friends, I believe this passage can serve as a needed rebuke for the pastors and churches today who do not preach God's word, who are entertainers instead of teachers. God has not called the pastor to entertain the flock, but to teach, to feed the flock, whose worship is man-centered instead of God-centered, who are ear-ticklers instead of truth-givers, who seek to build their church by being popular, cool, and trendy, instead of building Christ's church by faithfully preaching his word, making disciples, and holding to sound doctrine, who are CEOs instead of shepherds, who change their theology to fit the culture so they don't offend, instead of offending sinners by calling them to repent and believe the gospel. This is a relevant rebuke for all of them. The Lord's rebuke in Malachi reminds me of Paul's encouragement to Timothy. It's the opposite. And I believe it applies to pastors and elders today. Preach the word, Paul says to Timothy. In the midst of his ministry, in the hardships he's facing in Ephesus, what is the answer? Not social media, not trendy new logos. It's okay to use those platforms. Not against that. But that's not the answer. The answer is preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove. That's hard. Rebuke. That's hard. Exhort. That's hard. With complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. There is no shortcut there for the pastor, the church leader. It is going to be hard. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. And the priests and the Levites who were to spiritually lead God's people at that time, they refused to reprove. They They refused to rebuke and exhort God's people. They refused to honor the Lord with their worship. They were going through the motions. Their religion was stale and dry. It was rubbing off on everybody. They did not desire God or have passion for his name. And the Lord of hosts rejected their half-hearted false worship. May that be a warning to us as well. Sometimes, even though we have good theology, we come to worship the Lord on Sundays and throughout the week like this. Well, I don't really feel like it, but I'll just kind of go through the motions. I'll say some of the words. I'll sing some of the songs. I'll listen, kind of. I might take some notes, but that's it. No, the Lord deserves all of your heart. He's the worthy God of all your worship. It's unacceptable. The Old Testament priest was to serve as a mediator between a holy God and a sinful people. In doing so, his ministry brought life and peace, blessing to God's people, but their failure would bring the very opposite on God's people in the form of curses, which is why the Lord says in Malachi 1.10, 
Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. If there would just be one priest who says, this is not good. This is not what we should be doing. Let's shut the doors of the gates so that no one can come in and bring their, their blemished, polluted, defiled offerings. We can't fix this right now. This is a mess. Shut the doors because it would be better not to make any offering than to make these polluted, defiled offerings to the Lord. God's discipline and judgment of the priests had already begun. Verse 9 tells us the priests were being despised and abased by the people already. So the people knew that they were corrupt, that they were shady, that they didn't have the knowledge to address it, but they knew. And so the reputation of the priests and the Levites was low in Israel. Another parallel to today. The scandals in the Catholic Church and not just in the Catholic Church, but in the Protestant Church. Again, there's other issues with the Catholic Church, but I think that's a helpful example. The immorality, the corruption that happens in the church, what has that done for the reputation of spiritual leaders among the people? Not just outside of the church, but in the church. I often walk into rooms, whether it's a family get-together or some other setting, and I feel the low view they have of the position of pastor. I don't lead with that, not because they have, I think they'll have a low view, but because I know. <laughs> Oftentimes they, they, they have this view that it's, it's all about the money. It's not. It's all about Jesus. That there must be some sin hiding among God's people, especially the leaders. That it's all for show. It's a consequence of the sin of the leaders in these groups. And it happens in the Protestant church. And in chapter 2, verse 3, the Lord says, if they don't repent, if they don't turn from their wicked ways, it would get much worse. Behold, I rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. This rebuke of the next generation of priests may have been related to the shame that would have come to them from their father's failures. The nation would be experiencing these curses and they would say, I know your dad's not here, but your dad is part of this problem. And so those, those priests in the next generation would feel that. The rest of the curse is quite graphic. It captures the Lord's anger over false worship and how important honoring the Lord is. The Lord put, would put the very dung from their polluted offerings. You see, the, 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 the animal would be prepared for the, the sacrifice. They would take out the entrails. I'm not all excited about talking about these things, but I need to because it, it's addressed in the passage. And those entrails would, of course, include the dung. And so they would have a pile of the, the leftovers, the parts that would not be burned on the Lord's altar. Dung, entrails, all that, that stuff. And the Lord says, if you do not repent, I'm going to take some of that dung in that pile, I'm going to put it on your face, and you're going to be removed with that pile. And that pile would be taken outside of, of the gates and burned. That's how seriously the Lord takes his worship, his name, his honor. In verse 11, we read, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. 
Then we read in the second half of verse 14, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. I believe this is a foreshadowing of what happens in the gospel, that the nations come in, Jews and Gentiles are brought in, and God says, looking forward to that day and seeing his people in that day, it's done. My name will be great among the nations. You don't know how great I am. People, repent, turn back to me and worship me. Hold high my name. This passage teaches us that God-honoring worship comes from knowledge of God and is strengthened by love. Because the priests had functionally forgotten who God is, they didn't teach the people rightly about God. And as a result, God's people questioned God's love and dishonored the Lord with their worship. A lack of knowledge of God leads to half-hearted, stale, dry, false worship that dishonors the Lord. The title Lord of Hosts is repeated throughout this passage over and over again. It's used throughout the book. It's used in the Old Testament. And it helps capture the bigness and the greatness of the God that you worship if you are a Christian. The word Lord, capitalized, refers to Yahweh, the self-existent God who is who he is. The word host means armies. It's a reference to the angelic armies of heaven. God is God, Yahweh, Lord, the one who is who he is, of the angelic armies of heaven. He is not some puny, man-made God who is just like us, but kind of more powerful, who, who does not deserve honor and worship. Lord of hosts is your God, church. You see, true knowledge of the Lord of hosts, who he is, how great and how glorious God is, this God who made us, who is his people's father and master, who chose to love us and proved his love by sending his son Christ to save us, is going to do this. It's going to lead us into rightly honoring the Lord with all of our hearts. If you know this truth, who God is and how much he loves you, this is what will happen. Doesn't mean you come into church every Sunday or throughout the week, it's easy. It will mean, that's my God. That's the Lord of hosts and I work ship him. He's worthy of my worship. I might come in and say, you know what? I don't really feel like it. I might go throughout the week. I don't really feel like opening my Bible, but then knowledge of the Lord comes into my mind and moves down to my heart. Oh wait, he's the Lord of hosts. I deserved judgment and destruction, but what has he given me? Grace and mercy. He's the Lord of hosts, my God and Savior. And so I will worship him. I will work through my own hardness of heart, my own struggles, and I will come to a place because of who he is and how much he loves me where I will worship him. And church, this is why we're not afraid of theology while we dig into doctrine, even the doctrine of election, because it's not so that we can just argue. It's not just so that we can win an argument. It's because this truth of God's election leads to this thought. God is so much bigger and greater and more awesome than I thought. And when we get to that place, then what comes out is worship. And so doctrine, studying theology, is not for the purpose of simply having head knowledge. It's, incre- it's to increase our heart's knowledge of how great God is, how wonderful grace is, and it leads us to change lives, living change lives. I am very thankful that we no longer have to offer our best bulls, lambs, goats, dogs, whatever they might be. I guess dogs wouldn't have been in there, but I think that helps capture the picture as sacrifices to God. And why? Because of Jesus Christ, who is the God-man, who became a man and lived a sinless life and died as our unblemished, undefiled, perfect, sin-atoning sacrifice. But church, we are still to make a sacrifice. The sacrifices have not ended. 
In Romans 12:1, we read, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We Christians are to be living sacrifices to God. Because of what God has done in the gospel, we are holy and acceptable. We are. We're not bringing an offering to say, can I temporarily kind of be made holy until you send the Messiah who will die and make me holy and acceptable before you? He came. You were once unholy, but in Christ you are now holy. You were once unacceptable to God, but because of the accepted offering, you are now righteous before his sight, not by your works, but by Christ's work. And now you are to honor, I am to honor the Lord and worship the Lord of hosts with my life, with your life. And so the requirement, church, is not less, but more. 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 It's not our animals anymore. It's all of us the Lord requires. This living sacrifice will, be, will include following Jesus no matter the cost. It will be hard to follow Jesus. It will require everything. It will mean losing our lives for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. It will mean loving our enemies. It will mean using our money, our time, to treasure Christ above all because that's how you treasure something. You use what the world treasures. You say, yeah, this is nice, this is great, but Jesus is better. It will mean making disciples, which is hard. No shortcut. You gotta read the Bible. You gotta pray the Bible. You gotta meet with people. You gotta get to community group and, and not just go there to be served, but to serve others. That's hard. And it will mean that we will desire to know God more and more through his word, that we never stop learning, pursuing more knowledge of God. And church, I'll end with this. May we be a church that honors the Lord. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this rebuke, this exhortation. I'm confident because I know this church that not every one of us needs to hear this rebuke because they are honoring you. They're living lives that are a sacrifice of praise to you, to you and to your great name. They're losing their lives because they have found their lives in Christ. They are sacrificing greatly. They're treasuring Christ with their earthly treasures. May those in that place who have come to this place to worship and honor you with their church be encouraged and refreshed by this rebuke this morning because it is not a rebuke of them. Lord, I pray for those who are not honoring you, who are far from you, who, who say, like the priest said, what a weariness this is, and snort at it all, worshiping and honoring you, that you would, with your word, by your grace, for that's what it really is, a rebuke from you is a gracious work, change their hearts, and they would with us worship the Lord of hosts. Open the eyes of the blind, we pray, so that you would be honored and praised and glorified by more and more hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.